Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kant. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the first in the Banneker Bones trilogy, uh, the story of two 11-year-old genius detectives who do battle with giant robot bees across the Latimer City sky with EMP blast rifles, which is the weapon of choice if you must fight a giant robot bee. The sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, they fight, you guessed it, uh, the Alligator People. And in book three, Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, they're up against a cyborg conspiracy. It's a very exciting time. If you're curious about the series, you can get Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees as an audiobook, a paperback, or the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Um, so check that out if you're interested in something a little bit more adult. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write horror novels such as my young adult novel, All Together Now, A Zombie Story, uh, or The Book of David, which is a five-volume serial horror novel about an atheist who purchases a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. It is crazy. Uh, it goes on for five volumes, wherever you think the story is going to go. There's no way to guess uh, because every at the end of every chapter, I intentionally flip the script and change things further until Jesus himself is a character in this story. It is absolutely bonkers. If you're curious about that, you can get the Book of David chapter one, the first of five volumes. Uh, as a paperback where the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Or if you go back in the catalog of the show about, I think, maybe 10, 15 episodes, it's, it's been crazy during quarantine. However many episodes ago it was, uh, I recorded an ebook of that first chapter. Uh, you can listen to me read it to you. You don't even have to switch from the device you're listening to this on. You can enjoy all of chapter one. And then once you're hooked, well, you'll be reading chapter two, three, four, and five. I'm not reading the ones that I charge you for for free. But by God, you can hear me read chapter one. Uh, and as always, for interviews with uh, uh, hundreds, uh, almost thousands of uh, literary agents, editors, authors, publishing professionals, folks you'd be interested in. You can check out the archive of those written interviews, as well as all of the past episodes of this show, and find out about what's coming up with the next show at middlegradeninja.com. Go there. It's really the only website you'll ever need to visit for the rest of your life. And that is plenty. It's, it's too much, really. Um, my guest tonight is uh, Marcy Kate Connolly, who I couldn't be more thrilled to talk to. Marcy Kate, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Ooh, I am excited uh, to have you here. Uh, probably the, the best place to start is I always, uh, I always say I don't do other people's bios and I never describe somebody else's book because I will make a mess of both. <laughs> uh, so if you would, just give a esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Sure. Um, I'm a middle grade and young adult author. Um, I live in the Boston area and um, I have a day job as a marketing nonprofit professional in addition to uh, my book writing. And I have a grumble of pugs, which people always like to talk about because pugs are the best. Um, and I love writing fantasy novels. Fantasy is my jam. I love writing weird little books. That's what I call them. Um, so that's my my little about me, um, I write weird books. That's kind of my brand. 
Ooh, and we're going to talk because there's uh, I was uh, enjoyed the audiobook for Monstrous. And oh, yay. is absolutely the uh, correct word, <laughs> <laughs> but, but so much fun. Uh, and I love the uh, the covers that look like uh, Tim Burton stopped by to help design them. It's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, those those covers. I've been blessed by the cover gods in pretty much all of my covers, but like the Monstrous ones. And I will hold this up because I happen to have it next to me. Um, this was Scotty Young. Who did this? He does actual comics. Like he's like a real, real deal. And the Ravenous is the companion novel. I was blown away by those covers. My that was my first book was monstrous, and that was like hit the jackpot <laughs> with the cover gods on that one. That's for sure. <laughs> for anyone who is nostalgic for uh, what was it, the melancholy death of Oyster Boy and other tales by Tim Burton, the uh, illustrations from that book could would be right at home. I think. I'll uh, with the, the covers. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that one, but that's that's fascinating. I'll have to look that up. I assure you, it's the highest praise I have to give. It's one of my <laughs> my, my favorite uh, books of, of of art and and poetry. Nice. <laughs> that's awesome. That's very cool. <laughs> so when uh, when did you know that you were destined to one day write weird middle grade? <laughs> uh, like you said, was it creepy, weird, weird. De de weird definitely always weird sometimes a more creepy than others um my middle grade tends to be pretty much creepy um my upcoming young adult book twin daggers which i'll plug here as well um is not so much creepy but definitely kind of on the weird darker type side um and twin daggers is available august 25th yes august 25th I bet it's available for pre-order right now isn't it, it absolutely is thank you um, and it's, um, basically it's a fantasy spin on Romeo and Juliet, if Juliet and her twin sister were magic-wielding spies. Um, and it's set in this world where, um, of magic versus machines. They're, the spies are the magi. They're this people, magic users who've been, um, almost entirely wiped out in a war a hundred years ago. <clears throat> and the technocrats are the people who are, are in control of the country now, and they think the magi are more or less a myth. Um, but the, the twin spies are um, infiltrating the city to take down the technocrats. Um, they have to find an heir who does not have a heart. The, the heir has a machine for a heart instead. It's part of this curse that uh, the Magi sent to the technocrats as their like, last gasp in the battle. Um, so it was really fun to write. Um, and I love classics. So it was really fun to put like a new spin, kind of a feminist twist on, on Romeo and Juliet as well. Um, but to answer your actually your, your question, <laughs> uh, the U.S. When did I discover I wanted to be a writer? Um, it took me a lot longer to figure that out than it should have. Um, when I was growing up, I loved reading. That was like the most formative thing for me was reading, especially dark books. Like I loved the Grimm's fairy tales. Um, the Disney fairy tales are also really enjoyable, but the Grimm ones that were like dark and weird and kind of creepy, I loved those. Uh, my parents had this um, this whole volume of the mythology and fairy tales, like 12 volume thing. Um, and it was my mom's when she was a little girl. So like it was a little old back then. And like you opened up the pages and had these old timey drawings on it. And like it had the smell of like an old book and like it just transported you to another world. It's amazing. And I would sit on the couch and read these things. And it definitely heavily influenced my work. Um, also a big influence eventually was my older brother. I have an older brother and sister who are about nine and 10 years older than me. So my brother was in college getting his um, degree in English literature. I was like eight. 
and I was the bratty little sister who would go into his room and pull his books off the shelves. Um, so I was reading things that were totally inappropriate for like an eight, nine year old to be reading. I read um, A Midsummer Night's Dream when I was like eight or nine. And because I thought, oh, fairies, how cool. And like everything else went way over my head, thank God. Um, but I read a lot of Poe and um, and Shakespeare and and all sorts of things that were just really not age appropriate, but I enjoyed them and I read them because I was a I was a very good reader. Um, a lot of it went over my head, obviously. Um, so I knew I loved to read at that point in time, and um, and books were very much of an escape for me growing up. Um, I was not a popular child, that's for sure. Um, I was bullied by this group of girls in fourth and fifth grade. Um, who every day at recess would follow me around and tell me I was fat and ugly, like, every day. It was awful. Um, they were not very nice. Um, but me and my and best friends... now they've friends... all been re- remade as villains in your <laughs> work ever since. <laughs> I'll never tell. Um, <laughs> but me and my best friends, we, we were obsessed with this one particular series of books, the Redwall series by Brian... It's either Jake's or Jocks. I'm not actually sure because I've never heard it said out loud by anybody other than myself. But Brian, I always say I've Brian Jocks. Smart people say Jocks, but I'm suspicious because I've also heard smart people overpronounce things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I have a habit of overpronouncing things. So I'm saying Jocks because that's what it looks like to me, but I could totally be wrong. Anyway, Redwall, fabulous series, anthropomorphic mice and other assorted cre- woodland creatures on these fantasy adventures when I back in the day, there was like three of them, which totally dates me. Um, and now it's like 30 or something. Uh, but we love these series of books. We were obsessed with them. We would read them together and it was like transporting ourselves into another world. Uh, what we would do is on the playground, we would actually take on personas of the, our favorite characters or make up new characters in the fantasy world and go on like missions. So we'd be like hiding from the bullies on the playground. <laughs> so it was both literal and a figurative escape for me. Um, and that was just, it was such a formative thing. Um, I liked to write at that time. Yeah, it still didn't occur to me to be a writer, um, but I, I enjoyed writing. I actually found, um, oh, I wish I had it with me. I have it somewhere, but now I don't know where it is right now. Um, I found my fourth grade writing portfolio when I was cleaning out my parents' house um, about a year ago, and it had three pieces in it that are like so on brand for me. It's hilarious. Um, and I got an A, I have to say. I have to preface this say I got an A in this this portfolio. I would probably get a concern note sent home if I sent it in now as a fourth grader. <laughs> um, I had three pieces. The first one was um, a story about a girl who gets abducted by aliens because I was completely and totally obsessed with aliens growing up. I had, like, binoculars around my neck all the time. I was looking at the sky constantly. I was, like, I was that kid. <laughs> I was, like, I was, I was a little strange. That's okay. Um, then the next piece was my last will and testament. Um, I left my silver to my sister and my gold to my mother. Not that I had any of those things, but I left them to them. Um, and then the the third piece was um, called The Seal's Revenge. And I actually illustrated this. I made this cover of the seal and this, like, happy title that says The Seal's Revenge in, like, rainbow lettering. And there's a narwhal on the cover and the seal and, like, two seals and I think the narwhal's horn is, like, dripping a little bit of blood. And, and the story was about um, the seal who wants to get revenge on this narwhal because the narwhal has killed his mate. And he manages to kill the narwhal. And then, in a shocking twist ending, the narwhal's mate comes up behind the seal and skewers him. 
So like everybody dies. <laughs> like this is around the time I first read Hamlet as well, which is clearly a very big influence on the story. Um, but I love the part that it had this like happy rainbow lettering in the title and then like everybody dies. Um, so I still didn't know I wanted to be a writer, but I really enjoyed it and had fun doing it. I wanted to be everything else. I wanted to be um, a poet for a while. I wrote lots of poetry, like ripping off Emily Dickinson. Um, I want to be president for a brief amount of time and then became very disillusioned with that. And then I want to be an archaeologist. I want to be... We couldn't do worse. You could. You could. <laughs> I don't want the stress. Are you kidding? My God. Um, I want to be a farmer who lived in a motor home and had animals attached to the back and like drove around the country. I was, I was, I had very creative ideas of things I wanted to be that were just very ridiculous. Writer was never one of them. And I don't know why. Um, in high school, I was still not a popular child, um, but I had turned to a love of music as well as reading. And I am a classically trained soprano. However, I have crippling stage fright. Um, won't be singing. So it's not well, <laughs> not well at all. Um, no. So there was a time when I wanted to be like a Broadway star and it became very apparent that was not gonna happen by college. And by college, I started writing writing music because I really enjoyed singing opera and Broadway and that kind of a thing. But I was not going to be performing. Like I would sing the choir when like you can't tell it's me. <laughs> it was just me. Doesn't go well. Um, so I ended up going to Hampshire College out in Western Massachusetts, which is a magical place. It doesn't give you grades. They give you written evaluations instead. I was no longer the weirdest person in the room, so it was fantastic. And I got to make up my own major of a double major between of the music and literature. And I ended up writing an opera as my senior, essentially a senior thesis. And it was a sequel to Hamlet. And it was Hamlet's journey through the underworld. And I wrote the plot of what happened. I wrote the music, but I still did not occur to me that I could write those words. <laughs> and I, it was looking back, like it's so ridiculous. What I ended up doing was going through all of Shakespeare's plays and after I devised the plot and then pulling out all these lines and bits and pieces and passages that might relate to my plot in some way and then Frankensteining them back together. <laughs> so all the words were Shakespeare's, and, but not really in the way he wrote them. So <laughs> the subtitle was... Fantastically <laughs> weird and nerdy and I love it. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> it was like my geek flag was really flying um, pretty, pretty hard. Um, so... <laughs> So my, it was called The Undiscovered Country because it was Hamlet. And then um, the subtitle was Quilting with Shakespeare because of the words. So still didn't have this idea that it was I could write these words, but I could write the music. I don't know why I was not thinking that. But eventually I then graduated and very quickly discovered that operas are not in high demand, especially from completely unknown composers, um, and had to like figure out how am I going to pay off these like crushing student loans. And eventually I began working in Boston. I was living in New Hampshire at the time. And... Um, I was working in Boston at an arts organization, so I could still be behind the scenes. Um, that's why I have my master's degree in is arts administration. So I do like behind the scenes stuff. Um, though right now I'm at a literacy organization, but before I was at like operas and theater companies and things like that. Um, but I was commuting two hours a day, two hours, excuse me, each way from New Hampshire to Boston because of the whole driving to the train station, going into the train and commuting traffic, working a full-time job and then going to school at night, taking these, these classes and hurry to get home and go back and do it all over again. And one night, I'm on the train. I don't know if you've ever been on the subway in Boston. 
but if you have um it's the oldest subway i think i think it is the, actually the oldest subway system in, in the country and it shows because sometimes those trains just kind of randomly stop between stops and just kind of hang out for a while while you're there waiting to get to, maybe like, like a traffic up ahead supposedly but they're really just kind of chilling for a minute um to like catch their breath or something and there's a lot of unused subway tunnels and it's just one night where i'm totally exhausted struggling to make that last train so i don't have to like sleep in north station overnight because that's awful and i learned how to run in heels at this point in time because <laughs> fun fact could not do it now then i could in my 20s um and the train is stopped between these stops and the gears are just, my mind's wandering, and I'm looking out the window, and all of a sudden I see this old unused subway tunnel, and there's a light on behind this, like, plastic sheeting, and it's glowing in this weird way. I'm like, huh, that's kind of cool. And I got this idea about fairies living in the subway tunnels of Boston. And I got home, and even though I should have just gone right to bed, I started, like, writing a little bit about this character and this story world and what it would be like. And... And then I wrote some more and some more. And I basically just completely fell in love with this. It was like, well, if I can write a two-hour opera, maybe I can write a 300-page novel. And I did. And I kind of never looked back. Um, that book was not published. Um, someday I'm going to rewrite it from scratch. <laughs> but it was not published, and rightly so, as it, I did try very hard. Um, but it had a lot, of, a lot of issues that need to be fixed. But it was a lot of fun. That's like the kind of randomly convoluted way I got into to writing was sort of by accident, I just got this like wonderful burst of inspiration. It was like, I'm going to give this a shot. And it was fun. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> You're like a less hateful J.K. Rowling on a train. <laughs> <laughs> getting, getting a brilliant vision. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't have the hateful part. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, unfortunately, regular uh, esteemed audience yeah. viewers who watch the show on YouTube will note that the Harry Potter figurines that used to de decorate the background oh. have had to come down. Ah, you hate to you hate to see it. Yeah. So, okay. So, at what point? So, the first book, it, that brilliant though, undoubtedly it is. Um, <laughs> really <laughs> doesn't doesn't quite catch on the way you're you're hoping. So, is it book number two? How long from there to the point where <laughs> you're? When do you start submitting? And what's the path that gets us the monsters? So, monsters is actually the seventh book that I wrote, and the first we published. So the path um, is long. Right, the path is enough. long. Um, it's, uh, to be honest, the path is actually medium. It felt really long at the time. Um, but I have friends who had a much longer path. And yeah, that's, it felt really long, but it was about medium. So I wrote that first story and I got some critique partners who were awesome. And actually several of them are still my critique partners today when I have time to actually, well, I don't have a deadline, basically. Deadlines make critiquing with partners hard, unfortunately. Um, but they're, they're, they're great, and they helped me polish the book, and they, I helped them polish their books and all of that. And, um, and then I queried agents, and I queried pretty much every single agent <laughs> I could find. Plenty of agents too, I'm sure. Um, and I got some requests, and then they all come back as rejections. Um, but during the meantime, I was writing another book, so I was like, this is really fun. I want to keep doing this. Um, so I wrote a book about a ghost story about a girl who works at a haunted theater. Cause at the time I actually was the marketing director of a haunted theater, um, which was pretty fun. Oh, and... we're coming back to that, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I wrote, I wrote a novel about that and I tried querying that and that didn't really get very far. It actually got less far than the first book. 
Um, and then I tried my hand at writing a middle grade book and a couple other random books. And um, I queried three, three of them um, before I finally got to Monstrous. And the third one, it was three. I'm like, sorry, I'm counting my head like it was three, right? <laughs> um, I wrote six books before this and I queried three of them. The other three are just safely tucked away and never to be seen. Um, and the third one before um, the sixth book I wrote, but the third one to be queried was came came really close. We thought, um, you know, actually partners and I, because I got lots of like agent interest in it, and um, it was a <laughs> YA sci-fi cyborg road trip novel uh, about this girl who accidentally discovers on prom night that she's a cyborg and goes on this cross-country road trip, and there's lots of mayhem, and it was so much fun to write and it just wasn't working for agents. They like thought the query letter was so great. And then I would get like feedback, which is great when you're querying to start getting feedback. That's really encouraging and good. Um, but I was getting feedback that was just like all over the place. Like I had one agent tell me, um, she thought the pacing was too slow. Another thought the pacing was too fast. Another said the pacing was spot on, but she didn't like the way that the romance panned out. And it was just, there was, wasn't some I could identify to fix. Um, which was so frustrating and so discouraging because I got I thought this was going to be the one because I got a lot of requests like a really high request rate compared to my other books um, and they all end up coming back as no and I kind of had to take this like step back and be like why am I doing this to myself because over this period of several years about four years or so um, I'd garnered at least 300 rejections I kind of stopped counting at that point because it was way too depressing um, and I had to like say, okay, why am I doing this? This is like terrible to get this constant avalanche of rejection. It is not fun. Um, and I ended up coming to conclu two conclusions. One, that regardless of whether or not I got published, I was still going to keep writing because I really loved writing. It was really fun. I had a lot of stories in me to tell. And so that was not going to change. Um, and then two, I decided I was going to keep trying to get published because if I stopped, I would always wonder what if, and that would really haunt me. <laughs> and it would drive me nuts. So I was like, okay, I'll keep, I'll keep doing this. But at first I'm going to write just something for me that's fun and I'm not even going to bother querying it. I'm just going to write it and have fun with it and like recapture that joy of writing that I feel like I kind of started to lose a little bit. Um, and this was around the time I got the idea for Monstrous. And I got that idea stranded in traffic <laughs> during rush hour trying to get into Boston there's a theme, Boston and my it's ideas. It's just amazing for you. It's you need to, be, you need to get off the road. You need to know how many places to go just for story ideas. Right? Transportation <laughs> in the shower, like when I get my best ideas. Um, so I was on the road, and all of a sudden, I'm like literally in gridlock traffic, could not move if I even wanted to. And all of a sudden, the very first line of Monstrous just fell into my brain. And the very first line is, I will never forget my first breath, gasping, heaving, delicious. And I had to know. Who would remember their first breath? What a bizarre thing to remember. How is that possible? And so I got this idea for this like kind of Franken girl who's been reborn um, and recreated rather by her father to get revenge on this wizard. And that's how she remembers because she's 13, not a baby. And um, I was going into Boston to, to hang out with some friends of mine for like restaurant week or something. And I was like the worst friend ever because I was completely obsessed with this idea. And I was like writing it on my phone and like totally distracted by this idea. Um, there was one scene in a restaurant where it, 
scene, meaning I made a scene accidentally, or my friend asked me a question. I was so absorbed that I like was so surprised someone was talking to me. I actually spit my water out all over the table, and like it was ridiculous. <laughs> and we're like this like fancy dinner play. It was I was ridiculous. Um, but I actually wrote when I was in that car. I actually wrote the full first page of the book on my phone. Do not try this at home. I was in fact parked on the highway. Um, and it actually hasn't really changed since. We added one line at the end of it, and the rest of it is the very same. But every other line in Monstrous, or every other page in Monstrous, have been like edited for the inch of his life. Aside <laughs> from that, um, so I was totally in love with the story. And when I finally did get home, stopped being a bad friend, and got home, I stayed up writing the first chapter and started plotting this. And I was just totally obsessed with the story. And I often have a hard time drafting quickly unless it's NaNoWriMo and that like lights a fire under me that nothing else can I don't know why um, maybe it's my competitive <laughs> feelings or something but it was not NaNoWriMo time so but I ended up actually writing this book in a month and a half which was so quick for me and um, it was like words were just pouring out my ears and I just loved my little monster girl and my chief artist kind of got wind of what I was working on like oh when can we read this I'm like it's not ready yet it's not ready no 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 one's no one's gonna like this like I do and it took me a long time of like tinkering obsessively with the story before I sent to my critique partners and um and then when they sent it back like oh you have to query this I'm like no 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 this is my for fun for me book I'm not gonna send this out no one's gonna want my monster girl this is like way too weird and, and eventually they did convince me to in fact try querying this story and turns out weird is what I needed. <laughs> like, apparently other ones weren't weird enough, I guess. Um, and I actually ended up um, getting off. Cyborg uh, on prom night sounded a little weird. <laughs> it was so much fun. Seriously, like someday I'm going to rewrite that book too. Like I have this list of like books I'm going to rewrite because I love the idea. Well, well like, now we started on a podcast. There are three different versions being written <laughs> as we speak. But you know, that's the great thing about an idea is like everyone has their own spin on it. So no one else would be quite like mine. Um, so yeah, so anyway, so I queried Monstrous finally and um, I got three offers of representation, which shocked me like crazy because I was like, people actually want to read this. This is cool. Um, and I had the, the tables that kind of turned where I had to actually, um, pass on, with two of those agents, which was like mind boggling, um, to have to do also terrible. Like there's nothing worse than having to say no to somebody who wants to work with you is excited, like about your, your book. Like that really stinks. Gave me a whole new appreciation, um, for agents having to reject writers. Um, but anyway, I signed my agent, Susie. She's amazing. Um, she's been my agent ever since. And she then turned around and sold my book in eight days to HarperCollins. Um, so it was like, yay, after four years of no, we get, we get a couple of really nice yeses, which is great. So that's how my first book got published. Um, and actually, fun fact, Monstrous, we initially, um, I was querying it and I wrote it thinking it was a young adult book. And my editor at Harper actually bought it as a middle grade book. <laughs> And which was an interesting conversation. He's my agent sent me the offer. She's like, so she wants it to be a middle grade. And I'm like, middle grade? Hadn't really thought about that very much. How would that work? Uh, but as it turned out, she's brilliant and was absolutely right. Um, it just required part of the end um, to be aged down, essentially. And like it was like in the last third of the book. And the book was also much shorter then. Now it's much longer. So now it would be the last half of the book, but then it was last third. Um, and 
then it really was, in fact, a middle grade book. So, and I've been writing middle grade pretty much ever since until Twin Daggers, which is finally getting published. So, my first YA. And um, my audience uh, uh, loves literary agents. Who? What was Susie's last name? Oh, Susie Townsend. Oh, okay, sure. At, she's at New Leaf. She's awesome. She's the I, best. I met Susie Townsend uh, in person, and she's uh, been featured at. You could read her seven question interview now, esteemed audience, at middlegradeninja.com. Everything you'd ever <laughs> want to know. <laughs> Susie's amazing. Highly recommend. She's awesome. She's she's a fantastic agent. She's a delight to work with. I will uh, send her us talking about what a delight she is, and then I will invite her to come on the show, and that'll be <laughs> that'll be the plan. Okay, um, we'll, we'll we'll touch on uh, some of your publishing journeys some more, but first uh, we should uh, get back to Twin Daggers, available yeah. August twenty fifth, available for pre order right now. So yeah. why, after uh, a successful string of, of middle grade novels? Creepy Weird Middle Grade is the brand. Why now is young adult the, the move? So it's funny because I kind of fell into middle grade with that first book, with my, my editor buying it as middle grade. Whereas before that, I always thought of myself as a young adult writer. Um, and it just kind of turned out that these ideas I had, a lot of them were really well suited for middle grade. And I really enjoyed writing that sort of like weird, creepy, I call them like my weird, creepy girls, um, except for the Star Shepherd, which is a weird, creepy boy, um, which was written with Dan Herring, who's an artist, um, which I have that cover here, too. It's going to show up because it's oh, so no. pretty. It's so <laughs> shiny. It's foil. I love it. Um, that one's <laughs> that one came out a year ago, and it's so great. And Dan is uh, the co-author. Um, we wrote it together. And he also does illustrations. So there's a bunch of illustrations in the book, and he did the cover, and it was really cool. Um, anyway, so I call my weird, creepy girls, but I've been working on young adult books all along. And I actually started working on Twin Daggers in 2012, which was around the time that I first got, um, an agent for Monstrous and Monstrous got uh, a book deal. So I've been working on this book for a really long time. <laughs> and then I had to write the sequel in like six months, uh, which is like publishing is so weird. Um, <laughs> it really is. But this is my in-between contracts book and like that book where I'm like, I love tinkering with this and I love these characters and I love their story and I really hope it gets out there eventually. Um, and and I have other young adult stories that I'm working on too, like a, a couple of sci-fi things um, and a couple of other fantasy ideas too. Um, right now I happen to have, you know, a really great relationship with um, Sourcebooks, my, who does my middle grade um, from Shadow Weaver onward. And um, so they've been really great, really supportive and, you know, they keep, buy my books so i'm delighted to keep writing them. um but hopefully you know the the young adult book will will do well and i'll keep buying those as well because i love writing those as well it's writing for kids regardless of the age category it's such an honor and a privilege like i love kids are so great and like i said before you know books were such a formative and important thing for me and they still are but they especially were when i was growing up um that being able to write for other kids is it's really a pretty pretty cool thing so you know, maybe I'll have a picture book someday if I figure that out. <laughs> I think that's the hardest uh, of, of, of the oh kids with genres. I think that, that one's impossible. Yeah, I have I have an idea, but I think it's too weird. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Tell me you want a 500,000 word saga about teens. I'm your man. I got it. But yeah. a picture book, ooh, I don't know about that. Yeah, when they say <laughs> every word counts, they mean it. They really do. Like, I tend to write long. Like, Monstrous is a middle grade book. It's 105,000 words. 
it's a beast. So how, uh, how did you get away with that as a debut author? Because that is uh, incredible. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly. Um, you said you sent it to the editor and they wanted to make it middle grade and it ended up being longer. So how how, how long was it when you sent it to him to begin well, with? Well, it's funny. When we sent it to him, I think we sent my editor, it was like 75,000 words because we've been pitching it as young adult, which for young adult, that's totally reasonable. Short even for young adult fantasy. Um, and then she wanted me to age down this this one plot issue in the last part of the book. And to do that, I ended up adding this really cool thing, and which I'm not going to say because it's a spoiler. Um, and it ended up spending a lot more time in a in the, in the monstrous. They spent a lot of time in this one city, Briar, and then eventually they ended up going to a different city, and they spent a lot more time now in this in that other city um, because of this additional fun things. Um, so the book really lived up to its name by it just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, and while I was, oh, I should mention my edit letter for this book. Oh, I should have brought that down. Um, I didn't, I used everybody for school visits and it's fantastic. It's 20 single space pages. Um, welcome to publishing, Marcy Kate. Um, <laughs> I, I nearly had a panic attack when I first got that. Um, however, it, it was brilliant. And, um, and thankfully my, my editor was, was very nice in understanding that it was in fact very long. And at the very beginning of the letter, she had this paragraph of like, I realize this is very long, but I think you're an amazing writer. You can totally do this. Rah, rah. Call me anytime if you need moral support. <laughs> um, so I had that like highlighted and like taped to my computer and read it over, over and over. Um, but also while I was writing Monstrous, I, in order to fill in a lot of things, a lot of what they wanted was more, more development of the characters and the backstory um, and things like that. So they kept asking for more. So I gave I more. It. Uh, they certainly got it. Um, and one thing that I ended up doing was writing a prequel novella um, because Chimera, the main the main character, she wakes up reborn, doesn't have a lot of memories. Um, so I wrote a prequel novella about her life before um, during this time. So like three month period of revising, writing this prequel novella and doing this beast of an edit letter. And uh, so I, I basically added like between the prequel novella and the additional words like I wrote like 50,000 words one summer, which is not normal for me. Um, but I loved the story, so it worked. And uh, and the prequel novella actually is published in the back of Ravenous. It's called Precious. Uh, but you wouldn't want to read it until after you've read Monstrous because it's kind of a spoiler. But um, but yeah, so it, it took a while to, to get there. But uh, yeah, it's it's a beast. And then funny thing, when they uh, we started getting time to write Ravenous, uh, my editor, we had a little conversation like, need to keep this a little shorter which <laughs> was like yes i will make it shorter so ravenous is more like seventy-five thousand words but then they published a twenty-five thousand word prequel novella on the back of it so they're actually <laughs> the same size <laughs> it's not actually short at the end but it's okay so funny thing publishing is funny like that but the rest and, of my uh, just that monstrous was doing well, and they didn't want kids to feel like they were getting less this time around. You think? Maybe, maybe. maybe I don't know. Um, I'm good in my head. I don't know. There's, <laughs> sounds great to me. Publishing is a fool's errand. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the rest of my middle grade though is is has been shorter, generally speaking. Um, so I've kind of figured out how to to plot it a little better and and keep it a little less epic. It was so more like creepy and fun and and not as not quite as like epic fantasy as as monstrous probably is. So 
Ooh. Now we're talking Twin Daggers, available twin daggers. August 25th. Um, what, uh, what does the freedom of the YA... Uh, what what has that opened up for you? I assume more violence. Um. <laughs> yes, there is more violence in this book. Absolutely, um, there's they're called daggers. Um, also, more romance, which is nice because um, I you could have a little bit of romance in middle grade. Um, and I I would never say you can't do something in middle grade. Um, I had I heard some people some people say you can't have anybody die in middle grade and then monstrous. There's like literally twelve deaths, so some people die more than once. Um, happens, but in in young adult, I have, a dollar for every time I heard somebody tell me the thing you can't do in middle grade, I would have many dollars. <laughs> I seriously like it would be wealthy. Um, so like you can have romance in middle grade, of course, but it's not normally the focus. Usually, obviously, there's plenty of exceptions, but um, but for Twin Daggers, it was kind of freeing to be able to like put in more of the romance and that like that teen angst. Um, so kind of one thing that I also kind of got me into writing and thinking about writing was Twilight. I will admit I enjoyed Twilight. It was fun. I related to it. I was a very angsty teenager. <laughs> um, so I totally related to like that yearning and that that angsty, you know, yearning for the kind of a thing was like I totally related. And there's plenty of other issues of Twilight, but that was I that really resonated with me, even as like my late twenties when I first started writing and I was married. Um, it is like, Oh, I remember that feeling. And so trying to like recreate that. And that's like putting myself back in those shoes, but not having to actually be in high school. was kind of fun. Uh, with a much more like twilight. I knew at the time, I think was 36, 37. <laughs> yeah. Really. See, and that's, and there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a, it's a compelling story. There's again. There's certainly plenty of ways you can dissect it that can have issues, but there's there's that that sort of raw emotion that I think really really tapped into something with a lot of people. I know it did for me, um, and so and I I really liked being able to kind of have that romance and have it play out with my my angsty teens um, and the main character Asa. She's she's fun. She was fun because like she's confident. She has these magical powers um, and. She knows she's good at what she does. She knows she's a good spy. She knows she's fooling all these people who she's going to school with. They have no idea that she's like trying to take them all down and destroy their city. And she's a little overconfident. And but when it comes to like romance, she has no idea what she's doing. And it's like she's she goes into this assuming she will be able to you know be that she doesn't know about Juliet, but like she has she has that Juliet kind of archetype of like the two warring factions. Um, and so she goes into this thinking, oh, I can use these people. I can use this this guy for information. And it ends up not quite happening the way that she thought. Um, she doesn't know how to handle like these emotions that she's not supposed to feel for the technocrats, who are the, the technologically-minded faction. Um, and she ends up learning a lot about them, that they're maybe not as bad as she thought, though some are really, really, really horrible. Um, but things are not necessarily always what she thought. And, uh, and it was really fun to be able to do that and, and play with the idea of Romeo and Juliet. And I always loved Shakespeare, too. So that was always, like, fun to be able to do that. I mean, Hamlet's been a running theme in my life, so someday I have to do a Hamlet retelling. But that's a little bit of a depressing ending because everybody dies. So <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, again, everybody's supposed to die, but there's a sequel. So you'll just have to read the sequel to see how that finds <laughs> how <it> turns out. <laughs> um, but the whole point was kind of to turn on its head and taking the idea of Juliet as someone who has more agency 
And because I think that was one thing that always kind of bothered me about Romeo and Juliet is like, she's kind of just like going with it. And she's like, yeah, I totally love this dude. And now I'm going to like kill myself over it. But didn't have a lot of, she made some choices, but she didn't have a lot of like agency and not a lot to do other than kind of like hanging out in her room and like talking to her nurse um, until she's on the run. And which, to be fair, in, in Shakespeare's time would have been almost revolutionary for it, a female Oh, character, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And that for that time frame, totally. Absolutely. Not necessarily for this one. Though I guess, you know, in COVID time, I guess hanging out in your room and talking to a nurse is actually... <laughs> we all could, have that amount of agency. Maybe now. we're backtracking now. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to give her more of, like, the decision-making and driving the story a lot more. Um, was something I kind of wanted to do and make her more more of a powerful character and more of a driven character um, than one that kind of feels like she's just being swept along by these these forces. Because um, there's a lot of talk and shake forces of love are sweeping you along. And the main character, Asa, is totally blindsided by those forces too. Um, but she has her own sort of attempt to counteract them anyway. Um, and it was just a fun world to play around in as well. You can get a lot more a little deeper into world building in YA too, um, where you can provide a little bit more detail and um, a little bit more of kind of the, the nitty gritty type things, um, which I always loved when I was reading fantasy. I grew up on like Terry Brooks and um, you know, uh, Tolkien and stuff like that. We're like, it's not like Tolkien. We're like, I could never get to the Silmarillion because it was just, I tried reading it and it was like, just all this backstory and backstory and backstory. And I was just, it was almost like reading the Bible. Like he begat so-and-so. It was just ridiculous. Um, and, <laughs> but you can. seriously <laughs> feed off uh, fans of this show by, by asserting that I am not a big fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh. Well, there's more hate mail just for me, but it's boring. They walk <laughs> around, they sing songs, they eat lunch. It was probably revolutionary at the time, but I've read more exciting stuff since. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. But there's much faster paced books you can read now, I guess is the point. Um, but still, the whole the, the fun thing for YA is, is that you can get more more of a robust world. Um, so one thing that complex. a pretty detail that you're getting away with, that you're able to, to explore more. What's a good example of something you can do more you couldn't do in middle grade? Um, I think going into more of like the history of the factions is is one of the things that I did, did a lot of, especially toward the end when you find out some things are not what you think. Because um, you got to love twists. Uh, and there was, there's more history that you can delve into. Whereas, you know, and there is history to a degree in, in um, some of the middle grade books, more so in Monstrous, I would say, than the other ones. Um, but you can delve more deeply into, like, the history of the people who were, they were, were back then and their motivations and what they were doing. Um, as how it relates to the present, obviously, not just randomly for fun having it there as filler, um, obviously. But there's more of that. You can get more into that like meaty backstory and how that influences the current times um, and the impact, sort of like the ripples of what that has had for the current times. Um, and that's one thing actually my main character thinks about a lot is the ripples, how every little action that she does impacts everything else and that she's a very cautious cautious spy whereas her twin is a little bit more like having fun spying um not quite as as cautious as as asa is um that causes a little bit of tension between them um but that was that was fun but also like you mentioned before there there is some violence in it because 
they're fighting. There's some fight scenes. Um, there's one of my favorite scenes. It's not a spoiler. Um, which I look forward to. <laughs> um, where I could not have done this in a middle grade book. Um, where Asa, she's because she's so confident, she's, you know, thinks about how she has this magic. She could, you know, just cast a spell without somebody knowing and just basically grasp their heart in her hand without even touching them and kill them silently. They never know. They never know if she wanted to kill any of these people that she's around and kind of like murderous thoughts because she's just been bred to hate these people. And uh, when it comes time that she actually does end up having to kill somebody, it is nothing like what she thought because it can't be, you know, of course, because she has to be taken down a little bit of a peg before she can, you know, grow. Um, but she ends up having I mean, killing this person in a very, kind of bloody way uh, because it was not what she expected at all she expected to be just easy bloodless simple no not remotely um and her love interest ends up finding her and um basically cleans the blood off her hands and and face and then helps her hide the bodies (laughs) and like they help you to hide the bodies (laughs) like um couldn't do that in middle grade that's a That's great sure. idea for those of you struggling <laughs> to find something to do together. Yeah, totally, totally. Quarantine dates do not recommend. <laughs> well, if you're gonna go out and commit homicide, for the love of God, wear a mask. Protect Seriously, yourself. exactly. Right? She did not do that. There was just just covered in blood. It was terrible. So, yeah, not good. So when you're, uh, I'm I'm curious about this this almost theme through your life because you're reading Shakespeare at way too young an age. Then you're repurposing Shakespeare for the great <laughs> opera. Uh, and now you're retelling uh, Romeo and Juliet as this lifelong, this lifelong journey of a Shakespeare <laughs> fan. Uh, without spoiling, um, uh, how, how um, are, are, is the hardcore fan and you feel dedicated to stick to the text? Do you want a one-to-one mm. character? Here's the nurse character. Here's the, is it a priest, monk? The dude with the poison, yeah, Briar, some kind of prior. Yeah, it's been a minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that 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 pressure to do a one-to-one representation of everything? Or are you okay with just more of a general? How how I, that that's the, the spirit of my question. Yeah. So, um, I like to dabble in in both the the literal interpretation as well as more thematic. And I've done that through other books too, like Monstrous and Ravenous um, were retellings of fairy tales, sort of, like Monstrous was Frankenstein meets the Brothers Grimm, and Ravenous was um, Hansel and Gretel meets Baba Yaga. Um, but neither of them were faithful to those original narratives. It was very much more of an inspired by type of a twist on those things. Um, but Twin Daggers is more closer to the original um, in that um, it didn't start out that way necessarily. It started out more inspired by and then eventually realized it was going to become stronger if I made it more grounded in it a bit more. Um, and But it started out very much more of a thematic inspiration um, with those, you know, the idea of the two warring factions that sort of push and pull and people are not necessarily what you expect underneath and um, that sort of a thing, the star-crossed lovers idea. And... Um, then eventually it morphed into, I need to revise this. I forget what number revision, but it was somewhere around 20. Um, it's like, need to add some more bones to this. And um, went back through Romeo and Juliet and um, did what I, a little um, 
chart of, you know, scenes that are important and things that I wanted to pull into there and how they, I could reflect them into the book if they weren't already there, how they tying them together, like what was already there, what was missing and needed, needed some gaps. Um, and also making sure that if there were any themes that I was missing or like motifs of things, um, like one motif in particular, I kind of wove in a little bit more. And the last one was um, like that love is really brutal, it can be a brutal, unkind sort of a thing. Um, it's not necessarily the, the happy we ever after and the happy experience it could be you know a brutal terrible thing to fall in love with somebody and in asa the main character's experience that's exactly what it is she's like oh no what well this is terrible that i'm starting to feel have feelings for this guy what the heck um and and it's kind of takes you by surprise um so that was it. I've, I've done both um for this one it's a little bit more i'm not going to say rigid because that's not it's 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 a loose retelling um but it's there's definitely the similar archetypes um, throughout, and there's no like character I would say is specifically the nurse, um, though there is one I though one is kind of like the friar sort of um, loosely, um, but the main the most important ones really are Romeo and, and Juliet archetypes for the for the characters. So the Shakespeare fans will be both satisfied and pleasantly surprised then. Exactly. And there's a sequel, which there's not to Romeo and Juliet, so. Well, not yet. <laughs> not yet. I, that's true, I can write another opera. <laughs> there you go. Uh, this, is, this is your time. <laughs> Shakespeare fans have waited, uh, what, centuries now? Centuries, yep. Totally. Now you're here, step up to the plate and give us the, the sequel we needed. <laughs> right, I will, I will do my best. <laughs> so um, we're talking, uh, pivoting a little bit to fantasy, because I know that you teach uh, workshops or have given workshops mm -hmm. on, on creating magic systems. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, what kind of a taste can you give, can you give us for free? Uh, and feel free to, to use the magic that in, in Twin Daggers <laughs> as an example. Um, yeah, I did. I did a, um, a workshop on that at a Goodreads Comic Con a couple years ago. And um, let's see, one of the, one, I think the most important thing to remember about magic is that you do have, it does have to make sense. Um, I like to joke the thing I like about fantasy, writing fantasy versus contemporary, is that I can just make stuff up for what's going to be different. I just say it's magic. Um, but it does have to make sense. There has to be logic to it. There has to be rules and you have to obey them or have a really good reason for breaking them that actually makes sense within the scope of your world. Um, and that's not necessarily an easy task. Um, and that's kind of something that I write, write primarily fantasy. All I've had published so far has been fantasy. And every magic system is a little different and it always takes some time to like go through and think about what are the rules? What is this magic like? Is it an energy? Is it something almost sentient? Is it, what is it? What is it, how does it come to people? How is, what is its origins? What's the sort of backstory of the magic? Um, and thinking about that and brainstorming a lot of those things. Um, and I kind of have these like templates that I'll go through where I'll like jot down notes about things, um, usually in the beginning stages of plotting. I'm very much a plotter. I love to sit in my writing cave and make things terrible for my characters. So much fun. Um, you sit down and do like a full outline start to finish before you get started on the actual uh, writing? I, I use, I, I have a, <laughs> I have a brain vomit and then I, that I do where I'm like in the idea stage, like all these random things that could happen that I put in one word doc. And then I, um, I use Blake Snyder's Save the Cat Beat Sheets 
and I use that to plot my stories. Um, I wish I'd found them years ago because I think the first time I used it was for Monstrous. And had I used them on those previous six books, maybe some of them would have gotten published. Um, my very first book that I mentioned earlier had this like 10 page outline with all kinds of meandering tangents going off in all sorts of random fun places that did not actually move the plot forward. Obviously, that's why I did not get published. Um, but now I have a much more streamlined plots um, using the, the beat sheets that really helped me focus um, and figure out where all this random sort of like brain vomit in the Word document should go. Um, so that's what I used to plot. And, um, and then I use Scrivener to write. So that's, and I also find that the, the beat sheets is really helpful for writing a synopsis because you've basically got the bones of it right there. You just kind of got to copy and paste into another Word document and flesh it out a little bit more. And I hate synopses. They're the worst. Um, but having the, they're so bad. Um, but having the, um, the beat sheet there is actually really helpful and does like half the work for you, which is great. Um, Surely at this point, I mean, you're, you're Marcy Kate Connolly. If uh, somebody says, can I have a, a synopsis? Just say no. I, oh, yeah. I've this many it does novels. not work that plot. way. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it does not work that way. Um, because also, you know. You have to sell before you get to that point. I, way I, I, more I, I, than well. I have. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, not, not yet. Um, so it's a magic. Um, you have to have some kind of a, a a system for the magic, an actual system. And one of the things that I did when I did this workshop a couple years ago, I've only done it once, but it was so much fun. I would love to do it again. I hope somebody asked me to, because I have it on my website. of like, I can give this workshop. It was really fun. Um, we kind of went through this whole thing together as, as a group with, with the people who are there of building our own magic system. And I had these, all these templates and like questions you ask and things to think about. Um, and I, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't tell you exactly what all those questions are right now. Um, but things about, you know, like what I was saying before, is it an energy? What is it like? What are the rules? Who has it? Why do they have it? Um, is there, is it, um, a spiritual type of power? Is it a random power? And are there different levels of power and all sorts of things like to go through all this and what are the, the consequences of it? What's, what happens when you use the power? Do you use, is it limitless or do you take, is there a price? there has to be a price for magic um, of some kind um, and, and lots of things to think about to kind of really flesh this out and we went through this whole thing making this whole magic system um, as a group and it was really fun um, I have terrible handwriting but I had this like whiteboard and was writing all this of like flipping papers and stuff it was really fun it was a lot of fun so um, but you have to have a system for it it has to make sense and there's a lot of things you have to think about especially like the price in particular is an important thing to think about or maybe there is no price and if not why not does that make your power limitless and lots of lots of fun things to think about so what's a what's a common price that you would have to pay for magic uh, blood blood's a price in a lot of in a lot of fantasy novels the blood price is a thing you have to do um in others um it's um uh, i'll use monstrous as an example so in monstrous and ravenous magic is like kind of a living thing in a way it's not quite sentient but it's sentient enough that only people who already are magic can handle it and if and there's an there's an evil wizard in the book that nobody can kill because he's the last wizard and if you kill a wizard the magic will try to go into the the user 
the other person who killed them. Basically, whoever conquers the person with the magic, they'll want to go into that person because they think it's more powerful, but it will just consume them in flames because it'll just b- totally burn them up if they don't have magic already in them. Um, so that's kind of this, this sort of a price of magic is you can take on more and more and more if you already have magic, but if you don't, it will literally kill you because um, you cannot handle the magic. Um, whereas sometimes there's more less obvious prices. For example, in uh, my book, Shadow Weaver, I'll show the lovely cover here. Um, it's about a girl who um, uh, can talk to her shadow and her shadow can talk back, essentially. Um, but she also has the magical power of shadow weaving, which means she can actually create things from the shadows. She can craft things from the shadows. And using her magic doesn't necessarily take a physical toll on her, um, but her magic is kind of weird and creepy, and it takes a toll in sort of the price of her family, where her family thinks she's kind of weird. She wants to play and talk to her shadow all day instead of, like, people, and she gets kind of ostracized. Um, So there's different types of prices that you could have. Um, In Twin Daggers, the price is more, it's a physically exhausting thing. Their magic actually resides in their blood, Um, and so they have to basically hone it like a muscle. So they have to practice and practice and they train all the time. They train with like running and using magic and casting spells at the same time. Cause if they don't, they can be caught off guard and they can be, you know, out of breath and they can't sing the words of this incantations. They can't cast a spell to defend themselves. Um, so it's much more of a physical, physical thing and physical toll in twin daggers than some of my other books. So can they be like a video game? Oh, my meter is almost depleted. Let me grab a, a pellet yeah. or something, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't be able to really grab a pellet, but like you'd have to like, it's kind of like you wouldn't like run a marathon without working up to it. So they the the twins in the in the book become stronger because they've they've worked at honing their magic and honing their their skill their spell casting as well as their um their physicality of like training and running and fighting and all these other things while using magic as well. So if there was no price, if we just did, I don't know, um, a Superman character, but we even took away the kryptonite, just like all the power all the time. This is a facetious question, but what would the story problem for you, the writer, arise as a result of that decision? It would be boring because if they have limitless power, they can do anything. They can solve any problem. So that's also part of why you need limits on magic in some way, shape or form is you need conflict. And if they can solve everything with a snap of their fingers, you have no conflict and you have no story. There you go. Straightforward to the point. Beautiful. <laughs> um, that was uh, the shortest answer I've given you yet. Sorry. I'm long-winded. <laughs> In case you're wondering why some of my books are long. So. <laughs> Not at all. We like, uh, we like long <laughs> on this show. My audience, um, they live for it. Oh, good. <laughs> they want to hear everything that you've got to share. I'm on the right uh, podcast. Uh, written so many fantasy novels. Do you have you decided if you you know a genie shows up, whatever, uh, Will Smith appears uh, in blue uh, and says, "I will give you one of the powers you've written about. What power <laughs> would you want for yourself?" Oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I think I'd probably want Asa's magic because. It can impact more things, and it's more versatile than some of my other magics. Um, like the magic in, like, Shadow Weaver in that world, it's specific things, like shadow weaving or light singing, 
um, or green growing, that kind of a thing is very specific. Whereas um, in in Twin Daggers, the Magi, the Magi faction, um, they can basically use their magic on anything in any kind of organic matter, anything that has is alive. Um, except Asa and Xandria, not a spoiler because they tell you on the first like couple pages, they they are special because they can actually use their magic on the machines as well. Um, so they can use their magic on anything. So it almost appears like their magic could be limitless, but it's not. Um, there are there are ramifications and restrictions on that as well too, but that you find out later. No spoilers. Yeah, but if you were, I mean, if you were going to give it to yourself, you're not worried about the conflict. <laughs> totally limitless. No restrictions. Right. I'm happy to be boring and have tons of magic. That would be great. That would be fantastic. People come around like, ah, your story is kind of tedious to me. That's your problem. I'm great. (laughs) I'm fine with that. Like, my toddler used to go to sleep. Boom, you're asleep. You you nap for three hours because I have cast that napping spell on you so I can write. That'd be great. (laughs) Oh, I just got a great idea. A little another hour. (laughs) Yep. Keep sleeping. Sleep is good for you. It's fine. Magic. If I could just get my child to have a snooze button, oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. I love him to pieces, but oh my god, that would be amazing. <sighs> well, uh, I've heard that you're a Scribner uh, evangelist, uh, and we briefly <laughs> yes. touched on it there. But I want to give you the the platform to all the writers listening. What are the benefits of Scribner? How do you employ it? Okay, Scrivener is amazing. I mean, how much longer do we have? Um, <laughs> as long as you need. Go, although we're going to talk ghosts. I haven't forgotten, esteemed audience. We'll get there. But Scrivener. Okay. <laughs> um, so Scrivener. That's right. I forgot the ghost thing. Um, I love Scrivener. I do call myself a Scrivener evangelist. Um, I teach workshops on this. Um, I've, I've done a couple of SCBWI conferences that have been like two-hour workshops. I also taught one that was like a full-day, six-hour mega workshop, which is so much fun. Um, I didn't start using Scrivener until like 2010, I think was the first time I used it. And I've been writing for a couple years before that. And it changed my life. I know that sounds dramatic, but it's so true. Between that and the beat sheets, it's been like absolutely life changing. Um, I, when I first wrote my very first book, I wrote each chapter in a separate word document because I wanted to be able to move things around. And that's what worked for my brain. And I ended up losing a couple of chapters <laughs> that way and misplacing them because it's not very conducive to, to writing a whole book that way. Scrivener lets you put each chapter in its own little, little scrivening is what they're called, little text files within this whole Scrivener document. You can move them around. You can drag and drop. You can much more easily see the whole scope of what you're working on from like a 50,000 foot view. Um, Whereas in Word, like, it's so difficult because if you got like a 300 page Word document, you're scrolling for days to figure out where like, oh, where did this part reappear and, and all of that. It can be really difficult. Um, and Word is great, it has, its, has its uses, plenty of good uses, but Scrivener allows you to see this 50,000 foot view. Um, that's one of the many benefits. Um, it also, it, I know a lot of people will open it up and be like, oh my God, this is too much and close it immediately. <laughs> totally understand. If you're not technologically inclined, it can seem totally overwhelming at first. But it seems overwhelming because it has so many features. And it has these features because different people learn and work in different ways because their brain operates in different ways. Some people are more visual learners or visual thinkers. And some people are more linear and other people are text-driven or just want to, like, they're pantsers. They just want to go forth and write. Um, And Scrivener actually caters to all of those. 
Um, they have a cork board where you can add note cards and move them around however you want for plotting. Um, they then also have an outliner um, section where if you're more of a plotter like I am, you can put in your outline and see how that fits together and move that around too. And if you're a pantser and you just want to go forth and write, they have just the, the writing document section too. And the cool thing is all of those things feed into each other. So if you are doing things on your note cards, that automatically feeds into that outline and into the, the document portion as well. And so it's all connected. It's all interconnected and just, it's, it's so cool. So, but so the thing it's is, like auto-populating? Or? Yeah, it's all the same. It's all like that note card. is You can still see it in this, um, this little sidebar called an inspector um, as you're writing your document. And you can put other things there, like you put notes that pertain either to the entire project so when you're scrolling through the project, you can see these, these notes on the sideline there, wherever you are in the project, or this on their document specific. So you only see these notes as it pertains to this chapter. And you'll see the next one, the next chapter, when you go to that one, um, which is really helpful for revisions. And I use it as the best thing ever for revisions. It really is. Um, but it caters to those different ways of looking at things. And I, a lot of people will tell me, I just, I use Scrivener, but I don't think I use it very well because I don't use all the features. Like, that's okay. I don't know anybody who uses all the features of Scrivener. Like it would drive you nuts because there's so many features specifically because people think in different ways. And it's like, it's totally okay. You feel like, I feel guilty. Like, don't feel guilty. You don't have to use them all. It's they have these things you can do so you can create your own writing, your perfect writing environment and use these features whatever way works for you and whichever features work for you. And the rest you can just ignore because it's not like you're being forced to use them they are there as a resource if you need them. And if you don't, that's okay. No one's going to be like, you need to use the note cards. Personally, I never use the note cards. I'm just not a visual thinker in that way. I find them kind of useless. I know lots of people who swear by them. Um, whereas I like to use the inspector, which has um, the document notes for revision, um, as well as you can do like color coding things. Um, there's keywords where you can like assign keywords to each little chapter um, or scene. And I use that a lot in my last revision because I had a lot of like running themes and things that need to be addressed. So in my read through, I was like, oh, I'm going to flag this with this keyword, this keyword, so that you can search by the keyword and just see all the chapters pertaining only to that, that particular plot thread. So you just go through and revise that plot thread in those scenes and not have to like read through 50 other pages to get there. <coughs> um, I could well, how will I find this, all like, the random things that can be made better in the 50 pages? I'm on my way to get there. <laughs> well, you'll also obviously need to read your entire book at some point and tie <laughs> things in, of course. But if you're like, what I was doing was I was reading through and flagging things. And I was like, I should be working on this, adding this in here. And so I'm flagging this as, you know, this Romeo and Juliet theme or something. Or this, this sister relationship theme that needs to be fixed here or teased out in different ways. Um, and it can be really helpful. It's... I. I love Scrivener. I swear by it. I have this like 20 page document of um, walkthroughs and stuff in my workshop. And like, it's, it's great. If anybody, if the audience, if anybody sees me on Twitter or Facebook, feel free to ask me a Scrivener question. I'm happy to help. I'll give you advice if I can. It's, and it's so great. It's just, I love it. Um, it's really, it's, it's been this immensely helpful for me in figuring out how to write faster and in a more organized fashion. Um, whereas I was not remotely organized before. And I, did not write very fast uh, but now that I, like, I'm under deadlines and such like I have to I have no choice so 
I'm very grateful to have this particular tool. Also, they are not paying me to say any of these things. They should be. <laughs> I know. They should absolutely I should. be hired as right? a spokesperson. Um, I do not get any kickbacks for this. Send this woman free stuff for the love of God. <laughs> Send me free I, stuff. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I love the software. I'm happy to help. And like, if anybody has any questions, reach out on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And I'm happy to, to give you tips. Well, this is something that um, this is just a personal question, but I think it'll be beneficial for esteemed audience also. Because uh, before we uh, started recording, you were telling me that you've just written two drafts of novels within about six months. Yes. Um, and you, how have you gone from a slower uh, writer to a faster writer? Is it all scripture, <laughs> or, or what other tips would you have for speeding up? So, oh, can use a few tips myself. Um, so, <laughs> um, it's mostly. Uh, getting your butt in a chair and doing it. And I actually have a standing treadmill desk that I use, a walking treadmill desk, um, which I also find very helpful to get like the blood flowing versus sitting personally. Um, but that's not something most people can afford. I Thankfully, I was able to use part of my advance to buy, had to invest in that once I started working from home as well. Um, it's It was hard. I'm going to be honest with you. It was a really rough... <laughs> year um and six months writing two drafts of, of two sequels um i had the sequel to um <clears throat> to hollow dolls i had to draft it's called lost island and um that took me about three months and it was much shorter than than the twin dagger sequel which is called heartless air airs <clears throat> and um it was, sometimes drafting is really hard for me it's like pulling taffy from my brain I hate drafting. Revision is so much more fun. I love revision. Um, but it's kind of, it was kind of a slog for the first book. And then I got through it and realized I need to write the sequel to Twin Daggers. And I have like three and a half months to do it. And that was really hard. I did have to get, I think I got a deadline extension by like a month at some point, I think. I'd have to look at my notes, but I'm pretty oh, sure I didn't get a deadline. Oh, there's a global pandemic for it to take a month. <laughs> it was, well, no, it was before, it was, that was before the pandemic. That was from like June to January-ish. And then I've been revising them for oh. editing process. So the editing process is a little separate than the drafting. Editing is so much more fun. Also can take a long time um, if it's complex, but the drafting process is the worst for me. Lucky for me though, when I was writing the, um, Heartless Airs, a sequel to Twin Daggers, NaNoWriMo happened to be then. And I don't know, it's, it's clearly completely a psychological thing, but NaNoWriMo, I can fast draft a NaNoWriMo. I can't do it any other time of the year like I can NaNoWriMo, but I have written books in 50,000 words in 10 days, multiple times. It's terrible 50,000 words, but it's, <laughs> it's on the page and then I can revise it and make it better. Um, and I was able to use that month, wasn't quite that fast. Um, but I was able to write the 50,000 words and a little more, which was great because the book is like 105,000 words now. And I had to get words on the page so I could revise them and make it better. And, um, you know, I did the best that I could to get it in as best shape as I can. Um, but thank goodness for editors because, you know, even though I handed it in and it was in a book like form, um, it was like, I know that I'm going to be able to make this better in the revision process. And, Pretty excited about how it's come, how it came together in the revision process. My editor is awesome. Um, had some really great notes, and uh, really great to work with. It's a good team there at um, at Blink YA, and uh, hopefully people will like the, the first book and the sequel. We'll see. So, but it took it took a long time. Says so, yeah, I've been under deadline for about a year. 
I think I had a couple weeks in April. Now are you about to enter another deadline? Well, I mean, I'm going to have other deadlines. There's more editing to do. There'll be, I'm sure there's going to be another um, revision pass of developmental edits on the Heartless Heirs book um, at some point. And then there'll be, you know, copy edits and first pass pages. There's different levels of editing that'll go on that get to the more minutiae. They're not quite as stressful, usually, um, as the developmental edits, which are like the big picture and like often require a lot of additional work and additional chapters and a lot of rethinking things. Um, it's more, the fine tuning is more freeing, <laughs> though also humbling because man, copy edits, there's always something I'm, I, I had to swear off commas every time I get copy edits. Like, I don't know what to, I clearly don't know how to use them. I thought I knew how to use commas. <laughs> and every time I was like, no, nope, I actually don't wrong again. And we're like nine books in and I, yeah, commas. They always get me. Way to alienate to half the audience. Oxford comma, yes or no? <laughs> Oxford comma, all the way. Me too. That's, I'm sorry. The other one just causes so much confusion. It's silly. I hate it. <laughs> like, <laughs> at, my, at my day job, there's there's some educational writing. I work at for a literacy nonprofit. But I'm the marketing director, so I put out our copy. So whenever I see something that's not an Oxford comma, I add an, the Oxford comma. <laughs> There's much more Oxford commas in their website and marketing copy than there ever was before. <laughs> what kind of uh, time are you able to, to put in for writing to get the two? What, what, what does your day look like with a three-year-old, a day job, and you're at home dealing with, uh, I assume occasionally you read the news and despair for at least a, a little bit each day. Uh, oh, and yes. then <laughs> get on with it. <laughs> Staring into the pit of despair. That's, that's always on the schedule. Um, it's... <laughs> So it's kind of a loosey-goosey schedule because, I, like I said, I do have a day job um, and I have to actually do that during the week. And I have this toddler who's home and not at daycare right now. Hopefully in a couple weeks he's going back to daycare. Fingers crossed we don't see a spike in cases here. We're in Massachusetts, so like they're doing, they're doing decently. Um, so that's the plan and that will help. But right now it's kind of like Every free moment I get, I work in some emails for work, and I play with my toddler, and then I sit in front of the TV, <laughs> I do some more work, and he's watched so much TV over the last few months, it's like, oh, I feel like the worst mom ever, but it's been a necessary evil. Um, my husband works from home, too, and, like, that's what we got to do, you know? We can't not pay our bills, you know? So, toddler has to eat, <laughs> and he eats a lot, all those Cheerios. Um... <laughs> So, it's, and then when he finally naps, um, then I scramble to get some writing in, and that's that's usually I try to write as I, I, that, or unless I have like a work meeting or something, because they know that I'll be hopefully uninterrupted. The thing that kind of stinks is when we first started this whole quarantine thing back in like March, he was napping for like two to three hours usually every day. Now oh, I'm lucky if I get if I get an hour, I am lucky. Sorry. So. All the time. Drives me crazy. Like, buddy, you're up way too early. He's like, I don't want to go to bed. I want you to. (laughs) I love you so much, but I want you to sleep. Um, So, yeah, but it's it's kind of a haphazard. I do an awful lot of my work at night because I have to. That's like I'm, you know, full time momming and writing and trying to write and trying to, to work and. I'm really fortunate that my work schedule is, it was all it was already from home. So 
Um, they're very flexible, which is good, but I do have deadlines for that that have to be met, obviously, too. So um, it's been a juggling act, and lots of balls have been dropped because it's kind of the nature of the beast. Um, thankfully, I'm not the only one dropping the balls, so people are pretty understanding <laughs> about that. So, but yeah, it's, it's before COVID, things were a little better. I could, like, he would go to day, daycare. I would work for a few hours, then I'd write a little bit, then I'd work some more, then I'd write at night. And after he went to bed, it was a little bit more of a, a real schedule. But thankfully, the drafting phase, those two drafts, I he was in daycare. So just revisions, all hell is broken loose. <laughs> so You get uh, bonus points. Just so esteemed reader doesn't think I'm rudely bringing this up apropos of nothing. You, you wrote a blog post on it, so I assume this is fair game. You turned 40. Uh, yes. during the pandemic. So that's just extra existential dilemma for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's so funny you bring that up because um, age is such a funny thing. Like, I don't feel like I'm 40. And, you know, whatever. I don't care about age. Whatever. It's fine. But I was on tour with, um, with a Star Shepherd with my co-author last um, September. And I will never forget one of the questions these, these kids asked in the school visit. Um my co-author is a year older than me and the kids asked us how old we were. And he said his age first. And he's like, you know, Marcy doesn't have to say her age doesn't want to. I'm like, whatever. Like I'm 39. So I was 39 at the time. And nobody reacted to his age. But when I said 39, the kids were like, Oh, like these gasps of horror. I'm like, why? Like I'm younger than him. My co-author. Why is that horrifying? It was a very strange reaction. Uh, but it was very noticeable. Like the entire like class of like 200 students was just like, oh, like, like, okay. That was like, I don't know if that's like you're surprised I'm 39 or like that's old or I'm younger than you thought. I have no idea. I don't know. It was very odd. But anyway, but yeah, I, yeah, I turned 40. So it was kind of random chill birthday. I'm an introvert. So I've kind of been training for this my entire life. So it was, you know. I made myself my own cake is what I usually do. It's all good. It's fine. I have my, my husband and my son, so. It's all you need, really. Exactly. My favorite people. No, we're about in the same boat. I turned. I managed to get my 40 in just before the, the pandemic. So Lucky you. my existential crisis is have, I've been able to take them one at a time. So that's <laughs> nice. <laughs> but yeah, nope. It's just uh, my wife and my kid. And uh, we're, we're getting it done here at home as well. And uh, yeah. So far, so good. Knock on wood. <laughs> okay, well, enough enough delays. Esteemed audience, I made a promise to them, and I will not let, I try never to let esteemed audience down. Um, so we'll start with, I always ask about flying saucers, and you said you were, you had, you were out in the backyard with your binoculars, uh, keeping an eye out for them. Uh, yes. Um, so I, I believe that I did. And I was with my, my neighbor across the yard and her little sister and we're in her backyard, which is a lot bigger than mine. It had fewer trees. And we, we saw this thing, this like globe of light zigzag across the sky. And it was definitely not like a bug. It was up in the sky and we were totally freaked out and nobody believed us, um, which is such a bummer because we lived right near an airport. So we're like, oh, it's just like a plane. Like, that was not a plane. It totally zigzagged, and nobody believed us, which is such a bummer. But it was a legit UFO. And so I was an obsessed. absolute believer there, there in our skies? 
I think, honestly, like, the universe is enormous. To suggest that humans are the only life in the universe is, like, astoundingly arrogant. <laughs> like, <laughs> of course there's other life. Are they visiting our planet? Who knows? I think it's certainly very possible if they have more technology than we we do. Why not? You know, come see what's going on over here. And probably, do you know that gif of the baby who, like, runs into a room that nopes right out? I think they're probably doing that right now if there's any aliens <laughs> coming in here. But, you know, that is what it is. Of all the uh, questions I ask on this show, I think this is the one that's probably going to age the most badly. Uh, because the Pentagon's already confirmed they're they're in our skies. They totally are. They had a whole program. Like there's so much evidence. Like, and I love watching, I love watching these these things. I I have this like secret project that actually involves aliens, which it's not, it has not sold. So I'm not going to talk about it too much. But it's a secret project that involves involves aliens, and I'm really hoping with with the co-author. I'm hoping we we get that sold because it's so aliens are near and dear to my heart. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say, but it's so true. Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you, you can only do wizards and, and, and spies for so long. you got to have alien stories. Right? Clearly. <laughs> clearly. Uh, and then, okay, uh, so that's 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 flying saucers covered. Let's pivot back to ghosts. So tell to me, ghosts. this is a haunted... Where was this? You were working on a haunted what now? So um, I was um, back in... About 10 years ago or so, I was the marketing director of the Palace Theater in Manchester, New Hampshire, um, which has had rumors of ghosts um, for a really long time. It was a way back in the day. It was an old vaudeville theater um, that was refurbished and for I was a cinema and then it was closed down for a while. And now it's an actual performing arts center. <clears throat> um, they have a couple of venues in Manchester as well. And I was a marketing director there and um, there it was. It was supposed to be haunted. I heard a ghost stories from a lot of the other staff. Um, some of the cast um, had actually like seen this lady in figure in white on the stage. And people who would be down in the, the dressing rooms, which are below the stage, <clears throat> would late at night on occasion, working on costumes, hear people dancing over their heads. And there was nobody else there. Um, and, and like creepy stuff like that, like lights going on when they shouldn't and weird things would happen. I didn't personally have a ghost experience myself, but I will say I am, um, in addition to being the marketing director, they were also, I had just got my arts administration degree. So they were also like renting me out as the executive director of the residence in residence opera company. So it was kind of like a two for one. I had two hats and two offices and you were with an were... opera company and you didn't get them to perform your hand. <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. Um, they they did professional opera, not random composers. So they would actually like bring an audience. Um, it was so slam. I know. <laughs> it's it never got performed, and that's I tried once. I did actually have auditions back in the day after college to get people to like audition and like per, put a performance on, and two people showed up. So that didn't happen. <laughs> so maybe someday, like posthumously. We'll discover my opera and, and perform it. Um, but anyway, the ghost thing. Um, yes. So it was just this really cool environment. And um, we once did this, like, kind of a tour beneath the stage because there's all these, like, kind of secret passageways where you can go through different parts of the stage, this old, old building, and get to different parts of the building. And it was, it was really cool. 
but they actually had um, Ghost Hunters was there once, and um, hopefully my former boss doesn't watch this uh, this thing here. Um, my former boss uh, at the palace was it, you know, met with the Ghost Hunters and basically this like made up ghost stuff, which was so annoying because. He told us something about, like, the plumbing would go on, which nobody had ever reported. It never happened. And, like, he said it was, like, in this upstairs bathroom, which had never happened. And so one of the guys, apparently Ghostbusters, was a plumber. So they got, like, totally obsessed with debunking this. And, of course, it never happened. So, like, there was nothing to prove or disprove. And they had this Ghost Hunter thing where they came in to spend the night there. And, like, they were totally focused on the wrong things because our boss just made things up instead of telling them the actual ghost stories people had had. Just super annoying, but that optimistic. It was such a waste. It was such a waste. But um, well, I but I know a lot of people who who have worked there for years who had like who saw the lady in white and the actress who'd come through and like saw how like people tap dancing on their heads in the middle of the night. And when I was at the opera company, I was there late at night cleaning up after um, after the cast, which was like all these people who who were from Eastern Europe who didn't speak English, but they know the word pizza. So we'd be like we were responsible for feeding them. And they would hear, like, you'd go backstage and hear, like, pizza, pizza, pizza. And they would, like, devour the food because they starve themselves, practically, to, like, fit into their costumes and stuff. And when they're on the road, they don't have time to eat either. So it's kind of hard. But they would make this enormous mess. So, like, one in the morning after the opera's gone, I'll be in there with a garbage bag cleaning everything up. And, like, it was definitely a very creepy vibe. Like, I definitely did not feel like I was alone. (laughs) Um, so like usually they would at least see like one other like house house staff member would still be there, and but as soon as they're like hey we're 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 piecing out for that I'm like I'm coming with you, I am not staying down here all alone like because too creepy. So but it was it was a really cool place. It was a really cool cool building, and I think sometimes they do tours still. And obviously not right now, but um, it's a pretty cool place. So well, if your former boss is listening. Uh, hire somebody to <laughs> clean up the pizza boxes. Don't make your your marketing director do that. <laughs> well, I was I was while well, I was the executive director, I was literally the, the opera company's only employee. So I uh, like I sold the tickets. <laughs> I did their marketing. I did the the getting donations, and I did the the, the interfacing with the cast and all of that. So like I was I was a one man band basically. <laughs> it was actually a really fun experience. It was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. So it was just it was just funny that like they all they knew the word pizza. That was one of the few English words they knew was pizza. So <laughs> it was really random. But they were really talented and like put on an awesome show. It was a really it was actually a really great experience. So Marcy Kate, I'm looking at the time and oh I, I know I've exhausted all of it and flown right through it, but <laughs> I had a wonderful time doing so. And I so appreciate you you making time to, to be here this evening. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. No, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. This was a lot of fun. My uh, last question for you, but we'll call it a night. Uh, there's always some variation of if there was some bit of advice uh, that you could go back and give to yourself at the start of your writing career or whatever would have been most useful that would have made a big difference for you and might make a big difference uh, for those writers listening. This is my catch-all question. The, the thing that I wasn't smart enough to get you to say with my questions, this is our opportunity to catch it here at the end. What advice would you go back and, and, and give those writers listening? Um. That's a good question. Um, I think I think if I could tell my myself, I would be like, get buy Scrivener, spend the money, and <laughs> look sure. up be, Google Beat Sheets. Okay, um, I would have started there. <laughs> um, but I think really the most important advice is 
um, not to give up, which sounds like super corny, but it's true. Like, you keep writing. If you love writing, keep doing it and don't stop because you get discouraged. Keep writing for you and doing it because you love it. Because um, I know I, I had that, that time where I kind of had to decide, am I going to continue doing this? Because this is brutal to get rejections all the time. Um, and, you know, the only really way you can guarantee that you're going to fail is if you quit, if you stop and you give up. And as long as you keep trying, you still have hope that eventually this will pan out and succeed. Um, because every book that you write, even though it may seem like you're writing book after book that doesn't go anywhere, it's worth it to write those stories because you're learning something with each of those, which I know when you're in the throes of it and the throes of rejection, that's just like, you're going to roll your eyes at that and not want to hear it. <laughs> I was there too. I know. Um, but really, though, every one of those books is worth it because you have gone through this. You have written a book. And that is no small thing. That is awesome. It's going to be proud of. And you have learned something from that. And you can take that into your next book, even if that one doesn't pan out. Um, and that's that's important to remember, even though it's extremely easy to lose sight of and not value as much in the moment when you're being rejected all the time. Because rejection really sucks. It's not fun. But you have to figure out how to deal with it. How do you deal with it? Or did you deal with it now? It's a, it's well, you know, it's funny. No, no, not. I, it's funny because all the, all the hundreds of rejections that I got, it really helped me build up a very thick skin. So, you know, when I get negative reviews, it kind of rolls off my back. Like, I, I look at Goodreads, I'll admit. Even though, for most writers, do not look at Goodreads. Do not do it. It's a terrible idea. I find it interesting because I'm curious to see what people are thinking about the book. And it does not bring me down. Like, I'm not, I'm not just saying that to say, it. like, it does not bother me. It's like, okay, what's the book for you? That's all right. Um, but, like, my very first trade review um, was brutal. And thank goodness for my thick skin. The red, most of my trade reviews have been very nice. Um, but the one for, for my very first, first book, they hated, hated Monstrous. Hated it so much. Um, it was clearly not the right book for that reviewer. You know, and it, or they had a bad day, you know, who knows. But like I found it because thank you, Google Alerts. And I actually laughed because it was it was just so over the top. I was like, wow, not the book for you. OK, <laughs> that's OK. Um, but everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And that's and that's the kind of the, the magic about books, really, is that everyone's going to take your book and read it in a different way and get something different from your book. And maybe they, what they get from it is that they hate it and it's not the book for them. Hopefully not. Ideally not. But like inevitably, that's going to happen to somebody. Um, hopefully more of them than not will love your book and think, oh, this is really cool. Or I didn't think of things this way. Or maybe like think about XYZ in a different way than I had before. Um, and Or they'll find some kind of ray of light or hope in it, um, ideally. But inevitably, people are not going to like your book. And you've got to wrap your head around it and figure out how to internalize that and not let it eat you up inside. That is the perfect note to end on. <laughs> uh, Twin Daggers is available August 25th uh, for pre-order right now as we are speaking. Uh, go get yourself a copy. Check out Monstrous, Hollow Dolls. Get the whole catalog. You'll have a wonderful time. <laughs> it's it's quarantine. What do you got to do? <laughs> this is a perfect time to binge read. Uh, Mercy Kate, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online, stalk you on Twitter, all that good stuff? Um, if you can spell my name, you can find me. Um, my website is marcykate.com. That is M-A-R-C-Y-K-A-T-E.com. Um, if you're on Twitter, I'm at marcykate, spelled the same way. 
Um, on Facebook, it's at Marcy Kate Connolly. That's C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y, just to be difficult. Um, and Instagram is the same as Facebook, Marcy Kate Connolly. Um, but happy to say hi. Come say hi. We'll, we'll chat about books. It'll be great. Uh, and as always, esteemed audience, find me at middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Bannock Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Download your free copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1. Uh, go back in the catalog, listen to me read it. You'll have a wonderful time. God willing, and I'm alive. I'll see you next week.